Time for Test Tube Thursday, where we talk science, and Dan Riskin is here. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very curious to know what you're going to say about the NHL, so I will be listening. All right. Well, I guess that's why it's called a tease. Uh, It was well teased. Well teased. So humans walk weird, apparently, and scientists are closing in on why. This is not a Monty Python sketch. No. When humans walk, not like Monty Python, but when humans just walk normally, and not running, by the way, that's a totally different thing. This is when you walk. Uh, there are some peculiarities to the the gait cycle that biomechanists have spent a lot of time trying to figure out. And this, I like this one because it really gets back to uh, my PhD days, because I had a guy on my committee who was obsessed with how humans walk and was building robots that could walk and tried to figure out all these different things about how humans walk. And so it's nice to see where that research is going now. And what this study is really focused on is the fact that we have sort of two hits with the ground when we walk. So when your foot, if you're walking forward and you're, you swing your, your whichever foot, let's say your right foot, it hits the ground with the heel and it sends a force up through your leg and into your body. And then you rock across. And then there's a second hit when you push off. And those two separate hits are a little bit more confusing than a simple model where you just have a leg with a stick at the end of it, you know, and, and just a, a pad. So uh, they've been trying to figure out sort of how the foot stores the energy. and basically Basically, what it comes down to is that the energy that goes into loading the spring when your heel hits is loading up the Achilles tendon and stretching it like a spring and getting it ready for release. And then as you rock across your foot, you hold that energy and store it getting ready to go. And then when you push with your toes, that Achilles heel gives you an extra little kick. It, it helps push you forward. And so their new model that they've just published in a scientific paper sort of breaks down how that energy gets stored while the foot is rocking so that when you push off with your toes, you're actually saving a ton of energy. You don't actually have to pay for the whole step. It's much easier. And the the way to know this intuitively is to try walking, but without, you have to stop with every step. So put your foot down, stop, and then accelerate again. And you'll find that that takes a ton of energy. And that extra energy you're spending is your way of seeing how much you actually save when you just keep going forward and all those springs are working for you. It's really, it's really quite spectacular what the human body does to save energy while walking. But also fascinating to dwell on sort of the idiosyncratic nature of individual, like everybody has a different Mm. walk. And actually one of the funny things is uh, actors, when they're developing a character, one of the very first things they will do is figure out how this character walks. And then it just, the character starts evolving just from that. Yeah, and one of the things that I learned from this guy on my committee, Andy Ruina was his name, uh, still is his name, as far as I know. Um, he what what he he was uh, familiar with a bunch of places where they'd done studies, and they take somebody who's walking and they say, "Hey, we've done some calculations, and we think you can save energy if you do this when you walk." And people do it, and they measure how much energy they use, and you can never improve on what people do intuitively. We know how to use our bodies with intuition that is just spectacular. And, you know, this same is true for rowing, same is true for cycling. It's very hard for a biomechanist to look at what you're doing and find a way to improve it because we just intuitively know how to save energy. That's just what we're built to do. Very curious about this next one. Procrastinating could be a sign of health problems. Yeah, so there have been previous studies that show that there's a link between procrastination and, and like high stress levels, unhealthy lifestyles, um, not seeing your doctor when something's wrong. That makes sense. Um, but these the, the issue is that it's hard to know whether procrastination comes first or the unhealthy lifestyles come first. And so uh, this latest study out of Sweden where they took thousands and thousands of university students at eight different universities around Stockholm, uh, and they had them do like a big long questionnaire uh, over the course of a year. And basically, 
basically what they did for this one is they looked at their health over the course of the year and they compared it to their procrastination scores at the start of the study when everybody was healthy. And what they found was that there is a before and after relationship. They don't know that it's a cause and effect relationship, but it's certainly true that people who have a problem with procrastination at the beginning of the study were more likely to be depressed or have anxiety nine months later. They're also more likely to have pain in their shoulders or arms, which is strange, worse sleep quality, more loneliness, financial problems. And so uh, this is consistent with the idea that procrastination actually causes these problems. It's still not for sure that that's the cause. It might still be a correlation, but the procrastination is coming before these other problems in this study. And so what they recommend is if you have problems with procrastination, uh, the best way, the, the best way to really deal with it is cognitive behavioral therapy to get a therapist to help you. Um, but if you don't have the resources to do that or the time, um, they talk about breaking up long-term goals and short-term goals, get rid of your cell phone, you know, distractions, things like that, and uh, staying focused on a task despite negative emotions. So really dealing with the procrastination because it might well be something that has bigger, bigger issues than just the stress of the fact that you're putting things off. Are we getting a signal from another galaxy? Well, yes. I mean, this isn't really, so the, the headline is it's a record-breaking signal from a distant galaxy. And by signal, what Help they're really saying Obi-Wan is, Kenobi. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's this princess. It's the strangest thing. Apparently, she's having some problems. Alderaan, I don't know. It's a whole thing. Um, no, unfortunately, this is not that exciting. This is, they pointed a telescope at space and, and, and saw something, and they're calling that a signal from a distant galaxy. So basically, they just so, were able to observe this distant galaxy. This is kind of cool because um, the, the previous record for this kind of a, a, a data measurement, which is looking at uh, atomic hydrogen, they could see something that was 4.4 billion light years away. This one is 8.8 billion light years away. So they've doubled the, the record for how far away they've been able to look at this stuff. And that means they're able to look at an older galaxy that has the same stuff in it. Um, but the trick that they use to do this is this really neat thing that, um, that Einstein came up with called gravitational lensing. And the idea is that when uh, light from that far away or, or whatever, any signal from that far away galaxy is coming towards you, if there's a galaxy between you and it, the gal- it kind of goes around all the edges of the galaxy at once and then comes back together kind of like light going through a lens and it amplifies it. And so uh, because there was a galaxy between us and this far away thing, it was amplified 30 times and that made it possible to see something so far away when normally that's way too far to see anything. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. The pleasure is mine.